0: Republicans are so deeply concerned about the welfare of our children that in the last nine months, they've banned 1,600 books, half of them in Texas. One of the latest to be banned is a book called Everywhere a Baby, which was written for toddlers. The author speculates that the book was banned because of one illustration, which depicts two men hugging. Children's books being censored also include biographies of people like Duke Ellington and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. In many red states, American history is also being censored. Of course, to one degree or another, American history has always been revisionist, but the goal now seems to be to render it unrecognizable. More fiction than truth, where white Americans have always been the good guys and black Americans have always had equal rights. In Florida, Florida and Texas seem to be in a perpetual race to the bottom, the Department of Education rejected dozens of math textbooks. The stated reason was that they contained prohibited topics like social and emotional learning and critical race theory. A quick aside, no K-12 textbooks anywhere in this country contain any mention of critical race theory, which again is an advanced legal theory positing race as a social construct, which it is, that analyzes approaches to racial justice in America. Social-emotional learning, on the other hand, is or should be an integral part of how we teach all children not to be horrible people. One rejected math text has the audacity to encourage children to try new things in math or persevere when something is challenging, the horrors. And then there's the don't say gay law, also in Florida. This law perpetuates every homophobic stereotype by sexualizing everything LGBTQ, while making it clear that the only valid family is one-headed by a straight couple that is raising straight kids. In all of these instances, the stated goal of Republican lawmakers is to protect children, at least straight white children, from straight white families. Yes, they're so concerned for these children that they're willing to keep them enumerate, ignorant of their own history, close-minded, and bigoted. You know what they have no interest in protecting our children from? Guns. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as analyzed by the New England Journal of Medicine, in 2020, guns were responsible for more deaths of children and young adults under 20. In that year, guns killed 10,186 children and cars 3,900. Automobile deaths have been steadily declining since 2001, while firearm deaths among 0 to 20-year-olds have been steadily rising. The trend appears to be accelerating. Automobile deaths are down in large part because over the last several decades, a lot of research has been done to determine how to make cars and roads safer. On the other hand, states like Georgia now allow people without permits to carry concealed loaded firearms in public. This is not an exception. This is a trend. Despite the fact that in excess of 70 percent of Americans want stricter gun laws in place, gun control loopholes remain open, background checks remain unenforced, and weapons of mass death like AR-15s remain readily available. So when state legislators tell you they're banning books or whitewashing American history because they want to protect children, don't believe them. Because at the same time, those same legislators are doing everything in their power to make it impossible for gun safety legislation to be put in place. When it comes to our children and their right to a childhood free from the fear of being shot, they don't fucking care. Uh, I can't actually believe I'm saying this, but my guest tonight is the founder of Stand Up to Cancer, co-founder with John Molnar of Katie Katie Couric Media, author of the recent New York Times bestseller, Going There, and groundbreaking, ceiling-shattering journalist, the amazing Katie Couric. Katie, hi.
1: Hi. It's going to be so hard for me. To not ask you a million questions (laughs) on your own show, even though I know that's not my role today. But gosh, I have so many things I want to talk to you about. So maybe we'll have to do that another time.
0: I would love that. Uh, And I have a billion questions for you, which I finally get to ask. So this is really exciting.
1: Well, can I ask you, are you enjoying doing this, Mary? Tell me what the experience has been like for you.
0: Uh, You know, I have to be really honest. It was daunting Um, as you know, (laughs) I suddenly found myself being interviewed a lot as of July, 2020. And, um, I, I'm not just saying this, I promise you, it wasn't until my first conversation with you that I actually understood what it meant to be interviewed. (laughs) Um, and that I understood in a really deep way that it takes incredible skill. Uh, so you set the bar so freaking high uh that um yes I came to this with much trepidation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you and know. Tell, tell me about some of the some of the conversations that you've really enjoyed or appreciated since you've been doing this.
0: By the way you're doing it, you know. Sorry. sorry, <laughs> sorry. And that's the last question I'm going to ask. Oh, I mean I've had a uh, Fiona Hill phenomenal um Martina Navratilova, Malcolm Nance—I mean, so many people um, that—and I'm sure you've had this experience, you know—and and and you've written about this in your memoir, which is something we're going to talk a lot about. Phenomenal book, Uh, everybody! If you haven't read it already, which you should have, go get it now. Um, You know, you—we all have ideas, preconceived notions about people we see on television. Um, we think we know them. And as you say, we, we do, kind of. You know, we know parts of them. Um, but there's always this level of expectation. And when you interview people whom you've watched a lot or have known through their work, like, for example, Martina Navratilova in tennis, uh, who I've been watching her play tennis since I was a kid, and they turn out to be exactly who you would want them to be it's really gratifying
1: yeah yeah and and there's so many interesting people with with really interesting perspectives and life experiences it's incredibly enriching to have these conversations and i i feel like you can learn something from everyone you talk to really i i have that attitude about everyone you meet uh you know, when I started to date after my husband died, I was like, you know, it may not be a love connection, but I'll learn something. This person has a different different circumstances, different life experiences. Right. And, um, and it, I think it's really gratifying to have these meaningful conversations with a with a big cross section of people. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I think all it takes is someone who is interested And, you know, I think that makes someone interesting, I've been saying lately, because I think being curious, being inquisitive, trying to understand where someone is coming from is something we need more of in this world right now. And and recognizing that everyone sees things through their own respective lenses
0: yeah. And that's, that's what has made you such a phenomenal interview is your openness to that and your, your ability to let go to the extent that that's possible of preconceived notions and your ability to pivot. Uh, and one of the things that I found really, um, brave about your memoir, and there are many things, but is was your willingness to excavate, not just personal things, which we will certainly talk about, but those times in your professional life where you admit to missteps and mistakes, and don't just admit to them, but explain them. How was that process for you?
1: I mean, I think it was, first of all, uh, you know, I wanted to be brutally honest about my experiences. And I think that had to include being brutally honest with myself and admitting my shortcomings or admitting when I didn't do as good a job as I could have, or if I was off, I think, you know, you don't get to a point in your career like I have and be in a business for 40 years and do everything right, Mm -hmm. you know, and I thought it would be more instructive and appreciated and, and it would be a learning experience for people. I wish I wish more journalists were willing to say, you know, um, I shouldn't have done that or, uh, you know, I probably twisted that a bit or that headline didn't really match the article. My editors screwed that up or that's what they always say, my editors screwed <laughs> it up. But, you know, just being able to say, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and thinking about it and looking back and understanding the times we were living in, I could have done this better or differently. And I think that's a really valuable exercise. And I, I appreciate that you say it it was brave because I think when you admit your shortcomings, you know, you're not proud of them, but it, it it's something that you want to say, hey, I did this and on second thought or upon reflection, maybe this was I, I didn't behave ideally or I didn't comport myself in a way that was great. And and I don't know. I just I, I think, you know, there was one part of the book and I talk about being territorial and protective of my job, which I think anyone in a coveted position, Mary, feels that way. They can pretend they don't, but I would say 99.9% of people, if they get to a certain level, get, get, get a sense of, you know, mild paranoia and wanting to be protective of their turf. And, you know, that was translated that I wasn't generous or didn't mentor other women, which could not be further from the truth. But I thought the idea of, of basically just saying, Hey, there were times where I felt, you know, I, I felt very protective and territorial. Um, was was a courageous thing to say because yeah. it, it was a, an essential truth, not only for me but for almost everyone in in a coveted role.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so much there I want to dig into uh, first about um, admitting your mistakes and and how that has. Uh, become an issue, not just in the media but in politics, but also um, about the the ways in which you're admitting these things uh, were perceived and the ways in which that played out in in the context of when you were working when the opportunities for women were few, much fewer and farther between. I just want to take a quick step back, though, um, because. That sort of speaks to how your book was received actually before it even came out, right It was I think Fox called it nasty, <laughs> you know, some some snippets. Had been released uh, or leaked, rather, and as you've said in other interviews, of course, they focused on the most controversial or salacious details, which were well. The- not
1: only did they did they do that because it really, I don't know if you got a chance to read it, Mary, but
0: it of really
1: wasn't it really wasn't very salacious or not at all. Um, it was very uh, complimentary of a lot of people. Yes, a few people who I had bad experiences with. Um, I was super honest about sort of my interactions with them, mm-hmm. but um, I think that it was it was sort of the ultimate irony because I yeah. talked about how women are portrayed as as being in this cat fight when you're high, in a highly right. competitive industry, how men are rarely uh, portrayed that way. And sure enough, that's how they portrayed, the book that's and right. and it made me it, it was it was disappointing, but not all that surprising. When you think about this, the you know, the old chestnuts that are dusted off about women and 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 cat fights and all those things. And that's what they kind of that's what they tried to actually fabricate from mm-hmm. my book. Um, When it wasn't even there. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to modern media and certainly tabloid media, the tabloid press, um, because what they did is took, you know, snippets completely out of context, wove them together and tried to create their own narrative. And everyone who actually read the book said this book isn't like that at all. But I think it speaks to this, this burning need for clicks, And uh, and I just read recently when you write and this is not a newsflash, but writing mean things or writing uh, things that generate outrage or are enraging to consumers that it it gets a lot more attention than saying anything positive. So I think it was manipulated in a way um, that I found. As I said, not that surprising, but disappointing.
0: Yeah, because it is it is a book of great substance. And uh, some random person, you also mentioned some random person on uh, Instagram complained that the book was just me, 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 to which this is one of my my favorite lines to which you said it's a fucking memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, it is a fucking memoir. Um, But (laughs) I just love that. You know, what else are you going to talk about? It's a book about your life. Um, but words like nasty and, and the way you know, uh, they kind of set it up uh, or framed it in a way that was entirely inaccurate, uh, struck me as really being really sexist and misogynistic. Um, but on the other hand, um, it completely ignored the fact that, one, you're a human being who lived a rich, complex life. Uh, and interacted with many, many different kinds of people. You're not going to get along with any, everybody, you know, you're not going to have all positive experiences. I think you've also said, you know, what's the point of writing a book if you're just going to do that. Um, But I also felt you were very fair. You didn't uh, launch ad hominem attacks. You described situations and circumstances.
1: Right. And what it, you know, what it felt like from my point of view, but you're right. I mean, it, it, I mean I think listen I I have so much respect for so many journalists but there are a lot out there who are not necessarily the brightest you know yeah. or sharpest tools in the shed or whatever you want to say and 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 are experts at at reductive thinking so you know, luckily, that kind of went away pretty quickly mm-hmm. as as all the news and information, the cycle is so fast and that when people actually read the book, it was incredibly well received. And um, and and I'm you know, it, it may sound weird, but I really love my book and I <laughs> I really enjoyed writing it and I really think it's it's a really thoughtful, substantive look at the last 40 years and one person's experience against a backdrop of huge societal change uh, when it comes to gender politics, when it comes to race, when it comes to uh, the workplace and sexual harassment. I mean, I think when it when it comes to LBGT, LGBTQ plus issues. You know, I talk about the evolution of our thinking. And I think when all is said and done, Mary, it made me feel in in this terrible time in our country, it made me feel somewhat optimistic about where we've come in terms of our understanding of, of a lot of issues that were just simply taboo. Mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And, you know, some might argue, well, the pendulum has swung too far and sometimes it needs to, in order to, to, to have, um, you know, permanent progress. So I think, I think it's a, it's a thoughtful and, and it's a pretty serious book actually. And I think to reduce it to sort of this idea of a cat fight or Nastiness is is really um, underserving the book.
0: No question about it. Uh, i I probably shouldn't say this because um i've I've written well, I don't think my first book was a memoir, but memoir ish. Uh-huh. Um, I've read very few in my life until recently. I'm not really sure. I'm a fiction person. Um, so I've read more and more memoirs, and what i've what I've learned is that all great memoirs are those um, that resonate with the reader despite how different uh, the reader and the writer may be. I I can't really think of two people who had more different upbringings than you and I or who had more different family circumstances than you and I. And yet um, your book, which, by the way, I would describe as a very serious book with a lot of humor as opposed to the other way around. It is a serious I you look at gender politics, you look at um, women with careers, you look at uh, personal loss, professional loss. You look at the 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 evolution of the media landscape. You cover so much territory in this book and you do it in a way that. um is, uh, really insightful, um, and in a way that really engages the reader. I, I, I read it when it came out and then I listened to it recently. Uh, I love the audio version and I'm not an audio book person, but I love the way you read the book. It's great. Um, so that you were able to sustain that, um, was really impressive. And, uh, one of the things I loved about your book is that it incorporated every, and not just in the telling of the story, but in the creating of this incredibly rich picture of every aspect of your experiences as a professional person, as as somebody who has lived this quite complex life during very complex times. Um, but one thing in particular that resonated with me uh, was you're talking about your first husband and your kind of assessment of him after he died tragically at the age of 42 uh, from colon cancer. And that's something else I want to talk to you about in the context of uh, your stand-up to cancer and uh, other things. But I just, if it's okay with you, I just wanted to read uh, a section from the book that, um, You're right. Here's what I know about Jay. He was open-hearted and generous, always rooting for the underdog. He was drawn to people with integrity and character, and his friends who came from all backgrounds reflected that. But the romanticism that surrounded the civil war for so long, the regalia, the accoutrement, the pastoral settings, kept him from acknowledging the brutal realities that undergird, undergird the lost cause narrative and then you end that chapter, uh, after a really interesting quote, uh, by Brian Stevenson, whom I also admire greatly, uh, the founder of the Equal Rights Initiative, uh, you end that chapter with the sentence. I know it sounds like an excuse to say it was a different time, but it was a different time. And Jay never got the chance to live in this one. Um, you know, my dad died when he was 42 and, uh, I've often wondered that, too. What would he have been? He grew up in this horribly racist family. Um, I know I'd never experienced him that way, but he had very racist friends. What would he have been if he had had those opportunities? And I I wonder how... Like, that must have been such, such a difficult thing uh, to grapple with because you knew him in a particular way, and then after he died, you... Did have to reassess. And then you tell that very moving story of taking your daughter to visit a couple of Jay's uh, reenactment buddies. And if you could talk about that, because it was extraordinarily moving.
1: Well, I think that, you know, I have only the deepest admiration for my late husband and think he was an incredible person. <clears throat> One of the reasons I wanted to explore his interest in the Civil War is, it was in many ways a microcosm of this evolution that he never got to witness. Right. You know, when I was growing up, the the Civil War was romanticized. It was, um, you know, films like Gone with the Wind and even history books, I think, did not really talk about the root cause Causes of the Civil War, the root cause, which was the economic prosperity of the South, which was uh, obviously couldn't exist without slavery. And, um, you know, even when I was in college, these things were just not really reckoned with. And so I think because my younger daughter, Carrie, as an American studies major and someone who did a lot of research on my family history, which includes my father's family from Alabama and you know, who were products of their time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was something that, that Carrie wrestled with in terms of her father's interest and passion for Civil War reenactments and for the Confederacy really brought on by the fact that he went to Washington and Lee and, you know, was extremely interested in history, but also loved horseback riding, loved sort of being out in the outdoors and, and, and he loved the friendships that he made during the civil war reenactments. And, um, you know, I think it was really not until probably the last five to ten years that the national consciousness was raised about this. and of course Jay died in 1998 and in mm-hmm. the 90s there was this resurgence of interest in the Civil War thanks to movies like Glory and books like Confederates in the Attic and mm-hmm. um, and and so it was really just kind of trying to to figure that out all out and to wonder uh how jay you know we we couldn't talk to him about the confederate flag really coming to stand for something quite heinous while it had been semi-benign for so many years but then when dylan dylan roof put it behind him after he slaughtered those people at the church in charleston south carolina it it became sort of a sign, a symbol for something that was much more malevolent, and so I think that it was just a way of kind of talking about uh, our personal experience, but uh, against the backdrop of a much broader cultural awakening and understanding of of our history, as you were discussing at the beginning of this show, Mary that. I think the United States has had a very difficult time compared to other countries like Rwanda, for example, or even Germany, really looking clear eyed into our history and the mistakes we've made, you know, coming back to my book and being willing to say this was a mistake. This wasn't, this shouldn't have happened. Um, and how can we, how can we move forward and be better for it? Um, and and that's sort of the exercise that I wanted to do in the book, even less about Jay and more about us as a as a nation.
0: It, it is a, uh, a really good um, launching off point for that conversation, because most I, I challenge any white American who grew up in the 60s or 70s to say, I'm not racist um, I How could you not be? And I, I want to make clear, I'm d- making the distinction between being racist, uh, the ways in which we're taught by media, and by our parents and by, um, you know, subtle, subtle right. communications and portrayals in the media uh, the and culture. Right. And choosing to be a racist. Those are very different things. Um, so we are at this particularly fraught um, moment that has been a long time coming. And as you say, one of the reasons we're here, one of the reasons you saw insurrectionists in our capital flying the Confederate flag is because unlike Rwanda, unlike Germany, there has never been an accounting.
1: Yes, that's true. And... You know, uh, one of the projects that I'm trying to develop is a clear eyed view of history, uh, a documentary series that really looks at what really happened. Um, whether it can, comes to whether it's about anti uh, Asian uh, or you know, Asian hate in general or suspicion, et cetera, through Japanese internment camps. Uh, the role that uh, slavery played, uh, how we treated, uh, you know, the genocide that was committed against Native Americans. It's not, it's not to engender white guilt necessarily, but it's to help us understand uh, this country and some of, the, some of the things that were done right and some of the mistakes that were made and i always think you know why are people so afraid to admit mistakes and to say this happened and it shouldn't have um I, I i don't know what it is i think perhaps it's because just as we have been inculcated to have implicit biases right through all those mediums that you mentioned whether it's just people um have this implicit feeling of superiority and they don't want that challenged in terms of societal pecking order and uh you know as we face uh, dramatically changing demographics by 2044 there will be uh the whites will be the minority population in this country um whether there's a lot of trepidation about that and whatever privilege that automatically grant bestows upon you, uh, by virtue of, of your skin color. So, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's such an interesting topic and, um, you know, I don't think it has to be a holy war. I think that people should just be open to, to the truth and, To accepting things and not take it so personally, you know,
0: <laughs> I completely agree you, And it is a huge problem. And um, you're talking about, again, not being able to admit when we're wrong. Uh, that sort of brings me Back to uh, something we were talking about earlier, and then I do really want to talk about Katie Kirk Media because a lot of what you're touching upon are things that you're dealing with in in that incredible project you've got going uh, that you and your husband, John Mulner founded, well, five years ago now. After two years of lockdowns and stress, and with summer coming up, there's no better time to start eating healthier than now. And finding something that makes a healthy snack or meal at any time of day is the best step you can take, which is why I wanted to tell you about Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is a breakfast cereal that has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It also has only 140 calories and is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You will love their variety pack with its four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. You can even combine them so you can make your own perfect combo. And I'm telling you, these cereals taste so much like the cereals you loved when you were a kid but can't eat anymore because they're so bad for you, which— Magic Spoon is totally not. My daughter loves these cereals and it makes me happy because she's actually getting a really well-balanced meal with, again, 13 to 14 grams of protein every serving. Uh, We know one of the best things you can do for your health is replace carbs with protein and that's why you should try Magic Spoon along with all of the other reasons, especially the way it tastes. It's the perfect food anytime and it's great for the whole family. So just go to magicspoon.com slash Mary, M-A-R-Y, to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code Mary at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in its product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee, which means if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com Mary and use the code Mary to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. You can also find the link in our show notes. I want to get back to the not being able to admit we're wrong thing because it has gotten us in so much trouble, uh, particularly it seems in the last year. And I'm talking particularly about certain people in the media who uh, won't uh, uh, print retractions or give retractions on the news. I'm talking about uh, politicians, uh, particularly on the right, who um, will not – admit to mistakes as if that's a weakness of some kind. And I've got to admit, I thought about you a lot uh, as COVID unfolded because of your experiences. You have been a champion for public health for a couple, for decades. Um, you know, you're, as I mentioned, your first husband died from colon cancer at a very young age. Your sister, uh, Emily died from pancreatic cancer at a very young age. And, um, that you used your platform to help educate people. Uh, was it 20 years ago when you televised? Yes, yeah.
1: 22, actually, where I got a colonoscopy.
0: Yeah, and and <laughs> yeah. that created the Couric effect. You have an effect named after you because it inspired people to pay attention and take care of themselves in a way they may not have because it was embarrassing or people don't talk about these things. Right. And you've done so much work, uh, your foundation, stand up to cancer, which I think last I checked has raised hundreds of millions, $600 million, I think. And, and the very, uh, the dream teams and the very scientific responsible approach that's taken. And during COVID I was wondering how you must've felt, uh, seeing scientists threatened and science rejected um and people not feeling that they need to take take the most simple precautions like mask wearing and then getting vaccines it must have been uh well i don't i don't know you tell me
1: well it was frustrating and maddening and i think that this mistrust or distrust of science predated covid Um, You know, we saw that trend surfacing before uh, anybody had ever heard of coronavirus. And I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very perplexing. I think that people want certainty and science is a work in progress. I think one of the frustrating things is the scientists who are so brilliant, had to work in real time and, you know, they didn't have all the answers right away. And I think that was very difficult for people to understand that they would have to pivot or, you know, say, yes, you do need to wear masks. No, you don't need to wipe down your potato chips. You know, I mean, so it, 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 I think this lack of, of, this, this inability to appreciate and understand nuance and science. And I think it just speaks to a lack of education and sophistication in terms of understanding how, how science is done. And, um, you know, I think that in some cases, fear doesn't create the best, uh, Fertile ground for understanding facts and for staying calm and for being patient. And you know when your life is disrupted, but it 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 was extremely frustrating. And you know, and science is an art, really. You know, yeah. and, and they're not going to get it right a hundred percent of the time, but they're trying. And you know, the people that came up with the vaccine and the uh, you know all the these different uh, pathways to try to to inoculate people. I mean, it it, it was frustrating, but it, you know, of course, that leads into a conversation about the media and where yes. you're getting your information, Mary. And and the you sources, you made my
0: segue for me, Thank right? You. The
1: sources you're relying on, And yeah. And we are so fractured fractionalized or fragmented. I don't know what the best description is, but people are, there's no sort of small group of credible sources. Like there was back in the quote unquote good old days, which weren't that good because they were so restrictive in terms of who could gain entry to those worlds, you know, not a very diverse group of people creating this and being the gatekeepers for news and information. But I think because, you know, the world is flat now and everyone with a computer can write things and, and be a an quote unquote expert, it was very, very confusing for people.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think that while I, I find it frustrating, I can also partially understand it and, and appreciate how difficult it was to get, for some people to get reliable information if they didn't choose to use those sources.
0: Yeah. And in uh, coming up with, or deciding to launch Katie Kirk media, uh, you and your husband identified what you called white spaces. Uh, And I think that there is a real gap, as you've mentioned in other places, information is so siloed people are so siloed in terms of how they get their information. Um, and in COVID we had a situation in which people were actively being lied to by people in authority and very few people in the media seemed able to counter that, uh, in a way that could was effective. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the great things about your project, and I want you to describe it, um, but is 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 that willingness to take on issues, but also help people um, prioritize things that they need to know about? Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think your your newsletter uh, wake up call is is great. Um, but there's so many other facets to this organization, and if you could talk about how you partner with corporations and. The fact that you have total editorial control and are not beholden to anybody, I think is one of the best innovations
1: well, there there's a lot to chew on there. One of the things I was going to say is it was hard to break through because at the same time people were being fed misinformation. Uh, you know, journalists were being demeaned and diminished. and right. the whole idea of fake news and you know, I think this, they were uh, being told not to trust the media. So it was almost this Sisyphean, Sisyphean task to get people to understand facts versus fiction. And especially then you add to that, Mary, the idea that science didn't have all the answers. Right. And it was a constantly changing and evolving story. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are a lot of factors that that create a lot of confusion. So. I don't really blame journalists who are trying their best to cut through the nonsense, because in many cases they weren't speaking to a very receptive group of people. Right. Sure. Who, who, who didn't necessarily want the facts or,
0: and, you know. And Katie, isn't it true that. um being a journalist now is a lot harder than it used to be, one, because as you pointed out, for four years they were uh, threatened, they were demeaned, they were endangered. Uh, you know, it was a very scary time uh, to be a journalist between 2016 and 2021.
1: And I um, think because the country, Mary, is so polarized mm-hmm. that... You know, people automatically put journalists in one bucket or another, yep. and in many cases, they've had to choose that—you know—one bucket or another. Um, and yep. and uh, people are expecting points of view and opinion, and they don't want just the facts, and they don't necessarily want uh, any kind of moral equivalence. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just become a lot more complex, I think, to be a journalist and you know, listen, I, I read a variety of sources. I read so many different newsletters, but I just realized that I didn't necessarily feel super comfortable giving my opinion or doing commentary or being sort of talk radio on television. Yeah. And how could I still continue to tell stories, to ask questions, to explore topics that I think were important, um, you know, and, and my husband and i said well why don't we be more entrepreneurial if everybody's taking sides uh why don't we try to go back to a little more down the middle information um less kind of less commentary and make it make room for for these kind of exploratory conversations um and so we started Katie Kirk Media. I didn't want to call it that, but John was like, "No one, knows. you know, you call it Blue Banana." But basically, you're you're our person.
0: And you know, name recognition is it, and
1: you stand for something. And why right. not? So we started doing a newsletter, uh, which comes out six days a week. Listen, it's not everything you need to know what's going on in the world, but it's a good. Uh, I think, you know, points out a lot of things that you do need to know. I think that there are other things that you should read in addition to our newsletter. But if you just want to feel like, okay, I know what's going on. I understand what it means for Elon Musk to buy Twitter, or I understand uh, what it means for, you know, something that developed with the January 6th commission or committee and blah, blah, blah. And, and, And then some other things about health and wellness or a new study that came out about Alzheimer's, you know, it's really kind of like a newspaper and a newsletter. Um, But so we do that. I do a podcast where I like to explore big issues and also just talk to interesting people. We did something on women and alcohol, how much that drinking has increased as a result of the pandemic. We're doing a series on Roe v. Wade and what might happen if that's overturned, which looks likely. Yeah. And <clears throat> so it really gives us a chance to explore things. And in terms of working with big global brands, Mary, <clears throat> we came up with a different kind of uh, business arrangement where if you look at things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, or the Business Roundtable, or a bunch of other studies, you'll notice that as trust in government institutions, And the media has declined. uh, People are looking to companies to take a stand, as you well know, on a lot of different thorny social issues. Yeah, it's a fascinating trend. Yeah. And so as a result, companies want... They, 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 they want it clear that they care about certain things. Maybe it's environmental sustainability. Maybe it's uh, gender equality, LGBTQ plus issues. Maybe it's racial justice. Maybe, you know, it's policing. Maybe it's a, a whole host of big topics. And so we have been partnering with some of these big global brands like P&G, or Ally Financial, which cares so much about empowering women with financial literacy and helping them become disruptors in, in their own entrepreneurial way. And then we try to tell some of these stories um, that sh- where the the they overlap with my values and the values of people working at the company. So, um, you know, it's been really interesting. And I think a really Good model. I, as you mentioned, Mary, I, we have editorial control, so it's not branded content, but it's brand supported content. Mm-hmm. So we tell stories that they're interested in, in sharing and it could be anything, as I said, from female disruptors to uh, the importance of colon cancer, early detection and colon cancer you know, I just teamed up with Cologuard because there are forty four yes. plus million Americans Mary, who haven't been screened for colon right. cancer, and the age has been lowered to forty five. So colonoscopies wow. are considered the gold standard, but there are some people who are who don't want to get colonoscopies. Right. and there's this other method where it it detects 90 percent of all colon cancers and many in their very early stages. So I want to say, hey, this is another way to test and make sure that you know you're. If you have colon cancer, it's detected early. So we, you know, it's been really interesting and fun and hiring people and trying to find the right team. It's just flexing all new muscles right. for me. And um, working with my husband is really fun, sometimes challenging, but you know, it's it's just. Um, It's just been really interesting and media has changed. I mean, look at Mary, we're doing this show. And, you know, I, when I was in television, even in 2013, I felt like I was riding on the back of a dinosaur because people, people want information when they want it, where they want it. And so I'm just trying to, to be, you know, on the front end of this evolving medium
0: as you've mentioned, one it's a chance for you to be entrepreneurial as opposed to working inside somebody else's working thoughts. for the man, right? Working for the man, um, but it it's also really prescient. Um, you said in a recent interview, you called it about two months ago that CNN Plus, eh, I'm not so sure about that because it's trying to reinvent the wheel, whereas you're going an entirely different direction. Um, and I think you're really on to something there. Uh, first of all, you were absolutely right about, I don't think you said it's not going to work. Period. I think I
1: said like, right. I don't know how many people are going to want to pay. Right. To watch, uh, maybe Anderson Cooper get parenting tips. I, you know, right. or Chris Wallace I also interview- at some point, yeah. uh, at some point, it's a supply and demand issue. You know, we've right. seen it with streamers. I think we're reaching a tipping point where, you know, how much how much can you watch how many options do you need to have is sort of the paradox of choice right Mm -hmm. so um i i think it's a very very tricky time for media in general and i think that all you can do is be intentional and hope and write it or talk about things that you think are useful and and instructive for people you know, I, I often say that mass media is now an oxymoron. Yep. It is, you know, it is niche media and people are going to gravitate to the things they're interested in. And um, I think the best best way to to deal with that is to acknowledge that's that audiences are no longer going to be millions and millions of people. Those days are over. But can you be value-added for even a small group of people.
0: And that's one of the uh, beautiful things about this model is that it is you can be nimble and you can uh, adapt on the fly, as it were.
1: Yeah, this morning I called Kara Swisher and I said, hey, you want to do an IG Live about Elon Musk? Because <laughs> I don't really understand a lot of this and what's right. going on and what it means and who cares about Twitter? Does it really matter? And, uh, you know, and she was like, sure. So... I just talked to her before I came on with you and we just had a conversation for 20 minutes about Elon Musk and, and what's going to happen. And, and so I think, you know, I don't watch that much television news anymore. Yeah. I get it on my, on my little mini television called yeah. my, my phone. Right. I, yeah. and, and so you know, that's a whole conversation about our addiction to our, to our devices. But, um, you know, I think my father, I remember when I gave my first commencement address and he said something about you have to really stay on top of trends and how things evolve and, you know, and, and he was so, so smart about that. And I've always kind of been very cognizant uh, and looked around and and noticed trends and not tried to hang on to the status quo at any price.
0: Well, it seems to be working. Um, it's it's such a brilliant concept, um, and we need we need things like this. Uh, I I love the fact that you are um, really diving deep into social issues uh there's so much going on in this country right now that is troubling and people are really struggling and
1: um I'm so tribal Mary I think it's yeah people don't want to learn people don't want to reach a deeper understanding that's always been my philosophy like let's let's all try to learn this together and understand it and I think if it's against sort of what your tribe espouses in terms of their philosophy or worldview, there's you know, the door is just not open to to yeah. trying to achieve that level of understanding. And you know, I think that's that's where we just get increasingly polarized and people dig in their heels. And We've just lost our ability to talk to each other, um, yeah. and and so I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't know if it if it's a sort of fool's errand to try to do that, but I really am really trying.
0: Uh, I don't think it's ever a mistake to try to help people and educate them because one of the biggest one of the biggest reasons where where we are as a country divided, polarized is because uh social issues have been politicized when really it's just about people wanting to live their lives in better ways to be healthier to be accepted uh to be equal um so i i think it's it's a noble project and um i there's so much else i wanted to talk to you about but i don't want to i i could keep you here well
1: we'll have to do we'll have to do <laughs> All part- Ew.
0: Yes, I would love that. Um, and in the meantime, Katie Couric, I am so grateful to you for uh, your career, for the choices you've made, um, which I know can't have been easy. Uh, the examples you, you've you set um, for your incredible work uh, battling cancer and educating people about their health uh, for this. Do you like my graphics? Aren't they fancy? (laughs) This wonderful, and it's really well-written guys. So seriously, Um, it's a beautiful book and uh, you should be really proud of it because it, I know how hard these things can be (laughs) uh, to do. Um, So Everybody, please read the book uh, called Going There by Katie Couric. Check out Katie Kirk Media. Um, and thank you again for everything. You, uh, you're you amazing.
1: Well, thanks, Mary. And one of these days, I'd love to just sit down over a cocktail and, and chat away because I feel like yeah. we only see each other when we're doing a, a virtual conversation. But it'd be fun yeah. to be... Uh, off camera and off mic, and really dish with you.
0: It would be great, actually. Yeah, because the last time we spoke was January sixth, twenty twenty one. I know, I know. Cocktails would have been good <laughs> at that time, but
1: definitely, I would love that. For uh, having me, Mary, and good luck with everything you're doing. And uh, yeah, let's go out and have a cocktail. Where are you? Are you in New York?
0: Right now, I'm on Cape Cod, but I'm I'm usually in New York. I live in I live okay. in the city. I live in Soho. Okay,
1: good. Well, next next when you're back,
0: yes. Definitely, we'll figure it out. Thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate it and stay safe. Of
1: All right. Thanks, Mary. Bye. Bye.
0: One of the most important things you can do is keep your data and browsing history protected. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? But That doesn't always hide your activity as well as you would want it to. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited, which is why even when I'm home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Any internet service provider you use can legally sell your information to ad companies in the United States, but ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. It's an awesome service, and it saves so much time. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on because it runs so seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no reason for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. And visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com/slash Mary, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's com slash Mary expressvpn.com slash Mary to learn more or look for the link in our show notes. Now for some quick hits, as you may have heard, uh, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Well, wait a second, not necessarily. The board of Twitter has agreed to let him buy Twitter for, I don't know, $44 billion. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to, although there's been all sorts of panic. I don't know if they're clearing out bots over there or what, but I lost 8,000 followers in like six hours. We can't panic yet, guys. It may not happen. And if it does, the Democrats always seem to think that the best thing to do in these circumstances is run. No, no, we need to stand our ground. we Got to stop ceding territory. We need to use outlets like Twitter to make our own case, regardless of who else is allowed on that platform. Uh, So the war on Disney, uh, apparently um, Republicans in Florida are now anti-big business, simply because Disney took a stand they don't agree with. That is, uh, well, according to the Supreme Court, corporations are people. So that violates Disney's First Amendment rights. In the meantime, by stripping uh, Disney of its special status, Florida taxpayers have just been handed an extra two billion dollar tax bill. Way to go, DeSantis. Uh, And meanwhile, DeSantis has raised one hundred and five million dollars for his reelection campaign. Something's wrong. We've got to fix it. Vote for Charlie Crist. Uh, Thankfully, Emmanuel Macron uh, won the presidency in France, defeating fascist Marine Le Pen. Um forgive my French, it's terrible, I know. Uh, This is good news. This is very, very good news. If we lose France, uh, that puts the Western alliance and the EU at serious risk. Uh, Marine Le Pen, as you may or may not know, is uh, buddies with Putin. And as I said earlier, she's a fascist. What is troubling, however, is that whereas Macron beat her by over 30 points the last time they ran against each other, the margin this time was 19 points. Uh, So we need to keep an eye on that. You may have heard also that Hunter Biden is back in the media. In fact, uh, somebody in Congress raised uh, Hunter Biden's laptop to Merrick Garland. What does that mean? It means that the Republicans have nothing else to say. They're in panic. They're in free fall. So, of course, they're going to bring up Hunter Biden again. Marjorie Taylor Greene had to testify. Uh, She's being sued uh, by Georgians uh, who are saying that because she participated in an in insurrection, she should not be allowed to be in Congress. In other words, she should not be allowed to run for re-election re- based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that people who participate in insurrections against the United States aren't allowed to hold elected office. Uh, I don't know that it's going to work, but we do know that she perjured herself At least 25 times. Uh, In fact, when she was claiming not to remember whether or not she raised the idea of uh, martial law, which she can't even spell properly. um, We found out two days later that she was sending texts about it. Uh, And also, by the way, who believes anybody who says they don't remember if they talked about instituting martial law? Finally, uh, New New York AG Letitia James uh, has asked the court to hold Donald in contempt because he continues to refuse to hand over documents, and the judge has done so. So for every day Donald fails to comply, he has to pay $10,000 in fines, which will do absolutely nothing. But at least Letitia James is trying. Finally, uh, I'm going to answer some of your questions. I love hearing from you guys, so if you have anything you'd like to ask, please send an email to me, Mary, at Politicon.com, and I will get to as many of your questions as I can. Uh, From Anonymous, we always seem to be hearing from rank-and-file Republican voters and their crazy concerns. Do we need to hear more from the average Democratic voter who need politicians to be their voice? Where are their voices? Well, you know, apparently the New York Times only thinks that the people worth interviewing are white guys in diners in the Midwest. So, um, yeah, we do need to figure out how to amplify Democratic voices. Uh, The New York Times does not seem to be the place to do that. But um, it is it is a problem uh, because it it is as if um, this very small segment of the population is given preference, their needs, their concerns are given preference over everybody else's. From Mike in Auckland, New Zealand, if Donald disappeared tomorrow, would all the lunacy peter out and Republicans get back on board the bus to the real world, or are they too far gone? They are too far gone. Uh, they, they, I think this is where the Republican Party has been trending for decades, quite honestly. And um, Donald just maybe accelerated the process by giving them permission to be openly, more openly racist, to be their worst selves. Uh, so I don't... Um, I hate that it's called Trumpism, but unfortunately it is. Trumpism will outlive Donald. And in fact, it doesn't even need him anymore. Uh, You know, the Republican Party is constantly playing Dr. Frankenstein and creating monsters they think they control. But now the Republican Party is the monster. From Darren in Ireland, why don't Democrats just say stop? No, that's a lie and give factual information about the Republicans' lies. Unfortunately, America is becoming an international law. laughing stock. I you know, I honestly, I, I think um um Donald made America an international laughing stock. I think President Biden is doing a really good job of restoring uh, our standing. Internationally, however, you're right. Democrats don't seem to know how to fight this particular fight, and they don't. They don't need to give factual information. They just need to, you know, call a lie a lie. It's it's really that simple. They don't even seem to be willing to do that. And if they're not going to call a lie a lie, I'm worried that they're not going to call racism racism. And I'm really worried they're not going to call fascism fascism. And that's what we're dealing with. The in 2022 and in 2024. We are voting for democracy or we're voting for fascism. It's that simple. And that's what the democratic message needs to be from Mim. Instead of using COVID as the name, why are Democrats at every level not using the term Trump plague as the name for what Trump unleashed on this country? I would prefer it be called the Donald plague personally, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't know why he isn't referred to as a mass murderer at every opportunity. He's a mass murderer. He's a fascist. He's a traitor. Again, It's not that hard, guys. From Nancy in Maryland. Donald had previous Russian financial entanglements, um, which should have barred him from running. Why wasn't he vetted by the media right from the start in 2015? Well, because Donald hasn't been vetted by the media since 1982. He's, uh, for reasons that continue to um, boggle my mind, he sells papers. He's always sold papers. He's always been... Uh, you know, put on the front page of the New York Post or heavily featured on page six. Uh, I think it started because he, with tremendous help from my grandfather, was able to create this myth about himself. And it also it continued because um, um, New York elites uh, found him amusing. (laughs) And um, the the media just jumped on it. Uh, And then the banks followed suit. And then the Republican Party followed suit. And here we are. From Diane in Washington State. Is there really hope for our government and our country, or are we just flailing for shreds of hope that simply are not there? Of course there's hope. If there weren't hope, I wouldn't be doing this. You guys wouldn't be listening to this. I would probably not be living in this country anymore because it wouldn't be safe for me to. There's always hope. We do not give up ever. Um, There's a lot to fight for, but there's a lot worth fighting for. Uh, So we cannot succumb to uh cynicism i understand it's hard not to be cynical sometimes because it does feel like everything is stacked against us the media um the shamelessness of the republican party and on and on but we need to hang in there uh you know if you need to tap out for a few minutes and take a break that's fine everybody will have your back but remember uh the november midterms in 2022 are the most important election we have ever had in our lifetimes and Democrats need to win and they need to win big. So if we give up now it's over and I don't want it to be. (laughs) All right. Um, I want to thank you all for being here and thank you to the incredible Katie Couric. Uh, it was such an honor to have her on the show and, uh, to get to, uh, flip the script and interview her for a change. Um, I hope you all enjoyed our conversation. And uh, don't forget, we are here every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, live on YouTube.com slash Politicon. Uh, where every every Thursday, we have an in-depth conversation uh, with a guest. And we also have Tuesday nights, also live on YouTube, at YouTube.com slash Politicon. Tuesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, live, with a panel of uh, people from politics, from uh, the legal field, from uh, Democratic strategists, etc., who come on and help us figure out how we can make sure Democrats win in November. So tune in uh, Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, And be sure to follow Politicon on YouTube, like the episode, and I'm pointing at this bell here. Ring the bell. Uh, That way you will be uh, notified every time a new episode drops. Don't forget, you can ask me questions. Just email mary at politicon.com. You could also look for the address in the show notes, and you can also listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen please give the show a five-star review because it really does help other people find the show. Thank you again so much for being here. I really appreciate all of you. Stay safe and be kind.